Welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a podcast posted at www.pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. This is episode number 115. You can also listen or subscribe by searching for Pints and Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. We are also an occasional panel discussion program on Trent Radio, CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 FM. On Pints and Politics, we explore all things political, the focus on life in Peterborough, Quarthas, Ontario, and Canada. This episode was recorded on May 29th, 2022. Today, our focus will be on future-proofing Peterborough and the Quarthas. In other words, uh, what can be done to prepare our region for the surprises that the future has in store for us? Joining us is our guest panel, which includes Peterborough City Councillor and uh, mayoral candidate Stephen Wright, artist and ad- arts advocate Annie Yeager, LGBTQI activist and director of development for Rainbow Railroad, Dane Bland, Cheryl Lyon, activist and editor of Transition Towns, Green Zine. All right. So the future has an unrevealed bucket of promise and menace for us, but spring 2022 finds us in Peterborough awash in sort of a unique flood of uh, really what are unknowns. We're facing two elections, of course, next week, June 2nd, the provincial election and the municipal election on October 24th. The ongoing war in Ukraine is upsetting markets and adding to supply chain woes, thereby thereby affecting prices, uh, mostly in the direction of up for everything, food, uh, housing, rent, fuel, etc. Now, these prices were surging before the war, and now they are rising even more. Homelessness is on the rise across town. Inflation is climbing, and as if all that is not enough, we had a bit of a breeze last weekend. A big blow, some say a a tornado. So we're done with the pandemic, but as the cliche goes, the pandemic may not be done with us. Uh, Most people are adhering to the instructions issued by Peterborough Health, but a vocal minority refuses to abide by these instructions. The pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine issue is dividing friends and family. Peterborough recently had, per capita basis, uh, the highest unemployment rate in Canada. And despite the progress uh, with a safe consumption site and clean drug supply, the opioid crisis is still very much with us. Many businesses have struggled uh, during the pandemic. Some have had to close. Our downtown needs help. So all these trends and dilemmas are taking place under the looming uh, thunderclouds of a climate crisis. Uh, The most recent IPCC report back in February uh, said that uh, this report is a dire warning about the consequences of an action. This shows that climate change is a grave and mounting threat to our well-being and a healthy planet. Now, I should acknowledge that uh, much of what I've just rambled through is far beyond our local control. So while we cannot future-proof against all of these issues, what can we do as a community to play the hand that the imminent future is about to deal us, whether we like it or not? So with that, let's examine what, what should our business and institutional leaders 
be getting ready for? And what can all of us as citizens best navigate through the rough waters ahead? My first question, starting on the morning of June 3rd, what should be the top three priorities of the new provincial government at Queen's Park? The new provincial government or the same one with a different mandate bill, I think. (laughs) I think it. Great clarification. Uh, You can take it either way. It is Dane Bland here, Bill. So, look, I think let's let's pretend that a hypothetical provincial party that doesn't exist gets into power and they're going to do what is right by our community, regardless of political stripes. Um, because that's the only way I think that we can answer your question. Because if, look, if it's going to be same, same, then we, there's a lot of things. We know the answers. Yeah, we know what the answer to that's going to be. And so I think the first and most critical, um, there are three that stick out very clearly in my mind. The first and most critical is meaningful action that addresses a climate crisis. And I think that dovetails really strongly with with a whole bunch of really important issues that's going to lead to things like job creation it's going you know we talk about a housing crisis mitigation around population density and transit intensification and all of these pieces these are climate crisis solutions they're going to speak to numerous issues that our communities are all really facing i think uh, as a growing community in peterborough Kawartha in particular growth in a climate-minded way um, we're we're at this amazing precipice where we actually can see a little bit of the forest through the trees. We know we're a growing community, and we have the chance to grow responsibly. And so, I think if that if and Ontario is too. And so, I think that that's really important. I think that we are experiencing a crisis of affordability, and I think that that crisis of affordability goes beyond. I mean, we say the word inflation as some really abstract kind of thing but affordability is really is really key in in a couple of really important and meaningful ways things like transit affordability and infrastructure affordability and housing affordability are crucial and will make a meaningful true and meaningful difference in the lives of um of the average person. When I say infrastructure affordability, I mean, we need to be able to improve our bridges, our roads, our our systems that, that we have in place. We're noticing massive supply chain issues, which are challenging huge affordability sort of down the supply chain and ultimately being passed on to a consumer. And so we really need to do, gosh, something to address that. And the third piece, and maybe this is a more abstract one, a less concrete one, is we're so polarized. And I think that the, one of the key priorities of the provincial government should be leadership on human rights, social justice, being a soul and a conscience for our province. Um, one of the things that drives me really up the wall is that this current provincial government just doesn't seem to care when it comes to social issues like racism and the increasing polarization around race, like the way in which homeless folks are being policed, like the ways in which LGBTQI plus folks are seeing their rights sort of stagnated or or reductified. There's uh, the way indigenous people are being treated at the provincial level. It's it's really quite appalling. And I think meaningful progress towards social justice and, and human rights, actual progress on those issues should be a focus of the next provincial government. I can I can think of three parties that would do that. Um, I can think of at least one that has had four years to do so and, and hasn't yet. So we'll see. But those are my three. Other thoughts? Uh, Bill, it's Cheryl. I think Jane has pretty well covered the the whole territory here, but uh, if I were to sum it up in one word, it would be resilience. 
um, we are not preparing for the future. We are preparing for what is already here. If we can use that's kind of contradictory. We are in this climate crisis now. And it's just that people won't admit it or recognize it or uh, have any broad plan to do about it at the provincial level. That's what we're talking about. Everything has to be made resilient. And and that um, means housing. It means giving people a basic income because that makes you resilient. That gives you resilience. You can, uh, resilience is about bouncing forward, not bouncing back. We are going to be bouncing for a long time with the climate crisis. So the great context is climate crisis. Every policy, whether it's housing or building highways or healthcare privatization or raising the rates of ODSP and having or having a basic income, uh, every single thing needs to be seen through that lens because this is the crisis of our our time, and it's going to be our time for a long time. If we can build a resilient community uh, socially, economically, and ecologically. And under those three, I think uh, Dane has covered all of those three. We need to think about resilience in energy, for instance. That's another e- ecological, economic job creator. And I posed the question in or the consultation about the new fire hall as to why it couldn't become a neighborhood energy distributor or the uh, roof of the factory in my neighborhood called Genpac. It has an unobstructed roof for doing solar projects for my neighborhood. These mm-hmm. are all decentralized yeah. energy projects, and they're being done sure. all over the world. We need to start thinking about that in Peterborough. Yes, I know you, we've talked about the feminist lens before that Trudeau has talked about viewing all decisions through a gender equality lens. And uh, we've mentioned, well, why can't we also have a, a climate lens or environmental degradation lens to view all decisions? Yeah. Fine points. And equity, and, you know, equity for women and for other uh, minorities or disadvantaged and marginalized people is integral to uh, climate change response because sure. we're going to be leaving people behind if we don't include them. I just had a long conversation with a, a person who is in a wheelchair with multiple disabilities about the impact of climate change on her life. Bill Stephen here. You know, listen, the last two years, and, and I've said it while out uh, canvassing, has realistically forced us to look at the social contract and start to reevaluate what our priorities are going to have to be moving forward. You know, a, a Dane could not have put it any better. I'm surprised, you know, you should have been at those provincial debates being the one debating the issues. Because when we look at it, and I'm going to bring it down to the municipal level and look at one particular policy piece that came from the provincial government that had some good but had more bad to it when it comes to our community. And and that in particular is Bill 109, the More Housing Act. The attempt at bringing more housing online to deal with the chokehold on development took away what this community values most, our natural heritage features, our lands. So if you go back to the discussions of climate change and the climate emergency, it took away the ability for this council or for future councils in Peterborough to say, well, as we develop, trying to address that housing crisis, we also have to make sure that this particular lens of climate change is applied to that development. You know, whether we're addressing the poverty situation or just increasing the housing stock to address the affordability factor. Now, another question, and this gets much more granular for us living in Peterborough. What could be done 
and this is not long-term future. This is the short-term future, the next few seasons, the next few years. What can we do about the growing uh, crisis of homelessness in Peterborough? Every time I'm downtown, I'm just struck by the number of people that are out there. And what can we do? What can be done? I'll, I'll speak to that a little bit. It's, it's Anne here. Uh, Annie here. I, I think I think Stephen spelled it out really clearly that the, the province has created some real roadblocks to having a, a, a viable housing stock. I mean, there's lots of housing stock being built, but it's luxury condos primarily, and that is not going to serve the people who need it at this time. And there's there is a, definitely a growing problem. I, I really think it, it almost comes down to the community itself, like the grassroots community, not even the municipal level, to start pooling money and creating land trusts and creating co-op housing situations because the province is, is making it really difficult. And, you know, unless you can, unless you can impose, say, a 20% uh, rent geared to income lot on new builds or something like that, or you can create... Uh, modular housing or more co-op housing through government with government funds then you're just going to end up with the same situation i mean right now the city has been you know giving away money to developers to build affordable housing which is not really affordable for the the poorest of the poor and that money just goes out the window the developers get a a tax break or they get some funding to help with uh, the building in, in return for other favors, like, for example, building on waterfront property or something like that. So uh, there's these kind of concessions and, you know, back little deals that make that possible, but it's not really solving the problem. And I think also basic income would help a lot, but that's not, if, if we get the same government we have now, that's not going to uh, happen at all. I, in my, in my, very brief um, and unsuccessful political career. I advocated for one thing in particular, and it's something that I'm seeing a a few folks really take up arms on, and it's upstream solutions. Homelessness is a symptom of a bunch of problems. Um, It isn't isn't in and of itself a problem. I mean, of course it's a problem, and people experiencing homelessness is horrendous, but but homeless people don't just grow out of the ground. Like that's, and I think that it's such a misconception that people go, we need to just, we'll let, you know, let's get them shelters, you know, let's do this, let's do this and get them off of the streets. And that is a really fantastic bandaid. And we do need to do that. Um, there are not enough shelter beds in our community. There are, there are not enough, you know, seeing the, the, the difficulties of opening things up like warming rooms. And of course the pandemic uh, was really challenging in the shelter system in Peterborough. There was COVID outbreaks and they were difficult to staff and there were delays in opening the, the, the new mission. Um, and that those are all real challenges that I think are, are actual easy things that we can do at a local level. It doesn't actually matter who the provincial government of the day is. We can make those things happen to sort of ease that kind of burden. But there are upstream solutions that require so that require support from all three levels of government. One of which is addictions and mental health service training. God, I, how much money would I have put down that that the the you know the safe injection 
uh, and consumption research site was going to get funded while this campaign was going on, I would have bet my life savings that that money was going to come through when the provincial election was about to start and not a moment before. And call me a cynic, but Dave Smith does not care about addictions or mental health issues uh, insofar as it's a solution to get him elected. And after that, he will disappear for the next three and a half years, four years on the issue as well. Exactly what he did, what he did before. I'm not running for anything. I can be biting. Um, and so, uh, but it's true. Like it really is. It's horrendous. But there's an upstream funding solution that helps, that helps, or uh, that helps folks that also helps our nurses and doctors who are seeing uh, epidemics of opioid overdoses in our community as well. These, the funny thing about investing in upstream solutions is I'm a huge believer that an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure. It is cheaper to do that. It is cheaper yes. to invest a hundred yes. million up front than it is to spend 500 million treating it down the line. But the yes. problem is the political appetite just isn't there for the hundred million up front. Right. It's not there to build rent into, geared to income housing in spite of the fact that we know that those people will become contributing members of the economy if given a chance and will invest far more than it costs to get them into that housing solution. Yes. The yes. same thing with consumption resource sites, the same thing with warming rooms and cell shelter services, with employment services, with green jobs. They, they, are expe they are somewhat expensive up front and will save us billions in the future. Yes, Dan Hennessy has uh, been on this program to that point, that tiny homes, yes, an initial cost, but downstream, you save, as you said so well, Dean, on social services, on policing, on medical intervention, etc. And the more than uh, uh, recoup the initial investment. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, well, go ahead, Stephen. You know, it's a pity uh, that, that Dean, you're not learning for anything at all, because I mean, your your input in the debate uh, are significant. You know, when we talk about the housing issue, I mean, we could spend days talking about a number of solutions here. Uh, you know, I've made it clear, even in, in campaigning positions, that when we talk about housing, we also have to talk about the continuum of housing. It's important to build the estate houses. It's important to build the condos. It's important to build the entry-level systems because the funding that the city gets, and, I, and I'm going to take it down to the more minute uh, where we're speaking specifically uh, about the resources that we need to address our social issues. You know, we, the city of Peterborough is a corporation that has a $300-plus million budget and a long, extensively long list of priorities. Over the last number of years, you know, I, I heard the comment that, you know, the developers were given a significant amount of funding. And, and to that point, you know, the funding is given to developers didn't get us affordable housing. You know, I sat down with one developer and we went through, well, what's your construction cost? You know, for the bare bone, what it costs to develop uh, a 500 square foot home versus a 1200 square foot home. You, you run into the challenges of saying, well, right now, the restrictions around what you can develop it on, you know, your minimum lot size of 35 foot it's going to cost you $27,000 in development charges right up front before you put the shovels in the ground. And then you're looking at about $340 a square foot for whatever the development is. So when I look at, say, what happens in Montreal in your three-story rise condos, you know, the, the argument that surfaced years ago around co-housing as far as getting to an affordability factor, given some of the elements that we can't change, 
you know, we would have to go back to the province collectively, all municipalities across Ontario and says, well, let's revisit the development charts structure so that we can actually separate out a property that's built on a smaller lot so that you're not looking at your $27,000 charge. You might be looking at connecting a property onto an existing development. So, you know, you may be then $5,000 on the additional development charge. Let's look at allowing, you know, properties that are large enough to be severed and subdivided up that you can create maybe three separate units out of them and then take that argument back to the Canada Housing and Mortgage Corporation and says, we now need to look at how you allow this type of property to be mortgaged so that you're now mortgaging what could realistically be a 500 square foot home through that entry level, more affordable factor in in, in the face of what you cannot change, such as the current cost of construction. So there are solutions there, and I guess we have to engage the province. In, and I'm going to throw some shade on my current members of council. You know, and it's going to get me in trouble somewhere. I know this, but you know, I wish that my colleagues could spend a little bit more time discussing the solutions because they're realistic solutions. And even within our community, we can present the made in Peterborough solutions that can be rolled out to other municipalities. Absolutely, Cheryl. Um, my question is for Stephen. It's a, a sort of a general question. Do you think that the municipalities can't do much more unless they get some changes uh, to the Municipal Act at the provincial level to recognize the realities uh, under which that act, those realities didn't exist when that act was created? And you also hear the, the phrase that municipalities are creatures of the province. And we haven't been very well treated at this level recently, as we alluded to before, Dane. And uh, I'm wondering if we need to look at what more can a provincial government do to, to uh, accomplish the kind of things more even than you're looking at, Stephen. And your mention of uh, CMHC, they still have on the books that affordable, uh, the, the income cutoff for affordability is 30% of your income. But in practice, the programs that they sponsor that are, and I hate the name affordable housing because it's a misnomer, are not uh, implemented at that level. So either commit to that 30% of your income or stop using the word affordable and call it what it really is, unaffordable housing. Change it to housing that is affordable. Uh, I've packed a lot in there, but uh, generally, Stephen, it's, uh, do you think the municipalities need more power, more policy, more money? more le uh, legislative change. You know, that, sure, that's, that is a great position to allow the municipalities a little bit more autonomy than what we have currently under the, the Municipal Act. And, and if I were to circle back to, say, Bill 109 as an example, uh, the uniqueness of Peterborough, say, versus the uniqueness of Oakville and, you know, the number of heritage properties in Peterborough that can be redeveloped, you know, you have Schedule 11 under Bill 109 that takes away the power for a municipal government to say, listen, we've designated this section as heritage. And the developer says, absolutely not. We want to tear it down. You know, the one that raised a significant alarm for me personally was the proposal of a 30-story apartment building on the site of the uh, county courthouse, uh, Victoria Park. Having some experience in the construction trades, we know that you'd have to pretty much tear down the county courthouse building 
in order to have a staging area for heavy equipment to begin that development. So you devastate what is heritage to Peterborough, but yet the process under 109 to appeal that decision now goes to LPAT. So we've taken away that power from the municipal government to say our municipality has some unique characteristics that are not similar to other municipalities where you can just say clomp bonge, uh, apply a policy piece. You know, we have areas of our municipality where lots are large enough. And I look in the Simon subdivision where you can experiment with your additional housing on a current lot to, to bring in your small home or your tiny home. And again, allowing that to be mortgaged differently. But that power has also been taken away from the municipal government to say, well, look at our development process, our site plan approvals. You know, we get now penalized as a result of not passing development applications within 30 days. All right. And this particular topic could easily take days on its own. Just a general comment, Bill, and this is raising it to the level of theory, but housing has been financialized and commodified. Housing is not selling turnips on the market. It is a human right and a a basic human essential for life. And we've allowed it as a society to drift into the marketplace to a degree that is unconscionable. All right. From that, look at what we can do from another perspective. Sort of along with crisis, uh, of course, comes opportunity. Uh, For example, before March 2020, Working entirely at home was not an option for most of us. Now remote work is much more feasible. Peterborough, for instance, from downtown Toronto is now, for many people, an asset instead of liability. What other opportunities could we be exploring and embracing in this uh, 2022? Bill, one of the most unique pieces that I've heard come from the work from home scenarios, what Calgary recently did in a new bylaw that they passed, was that to allow an easier path to converting uh, office buildings uh, into housing units. Which they have yeah. in good supply. Yes. Exactly. So, I mean, that opportunity now exists because, you know, when I worked in IT, we were selling work from home or remote work solutions back in the year, late 80s. You right. know, the technology now has allow us to have this type of a meeting, you know, from various locations across the world. So now you've got these office spaces that are have been built and, uh, and you know, the brick and mortars is even for retail anymore, given the Amazons and the Spotify's of the world. What can we do to bring down the housing factor is probably, as Calgary did, look at how we take those towers and convert them to housing units. Um, yeah, I think speaking to that, I was thinking of the uh, of the Lansdowne Place redevelopment there, and uh, I I understand that the a lot of, of larger retailers have pulled out of that and with the pandemic and so on. And in any case, that large shopping malls just aren't cutting it anymore. People just aren't using them as as they did back in when they were first popular in the seventies. And it just seemed like such a huge opportunity to build a a housing complex with retail. And it could be actually a a whole community of mixed housing, retail. You could put a sports center in there, you know, maybe a daycare. I mean, that could have been a whole community, but those opportunities, for whatever reason, aren't aren't being taken. Bill, if I could just expand on Anne's point, what a great idea. You know, when you think of the Morrow Park Twin Pad development, the, the question you could ask is what else would you do with $100 million? 
Um, you know, That's a good <laughs> you know, there's a lot more, and I'm sure the twin pad would not top the list as a priority for our community. And and you you you've really hit the nail on the head of what other opportunity could have presented itself when Sears closed this location. Even if we were thinking about the building of the twin pad, you could have taken that space, built a twin pad in there, and then raised the building level of about 10 stories and with affordable housing and mixed-use housing. Because, I, you know, like Cheryl, I don't like the term affordable housing. Because if your income is $15 an hour, realistically, with a $340 development charge per square foot, it's not affordable. So, but you could have gotten to a point where you could have increased your housing inventory, what existing brick and mortar retail that existed at the mall could still now have a captive audience for uh, their location. And then you would not have spent a hundred million dollars or proposed a hundred million dollars for a twin bed. You know, the priorities need to be realigned given what we've experienced the last two years. I agree with those ideas. I'm also going to take this in a different direction. One of the, the cool things about, uh, I think the opportunity of working from home in a place like Peterborough is when people from Toronto and I'm, I'm Toronto born and raised, you can laugh at me all you want. Um, I, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> couldn't help it. But one of the things that people look for in Toronto is like Peterborough to them is a small town, but it's got sort of all of the trippings and trappings of, of sort of city life. And, you know, they come in with all this buying power and they buy up real estate and it forces people sort of out. And I, and I think that there's a real opportunity to intensification is it sort of has negative connotations, but to build up or to develop the other small communities that are in our in the in our region to make sure that there's working broadband Internet to make sure that there's really great support for some amazing local businesses and that they're given the opportunity to thrive, to support arts and culture in smaller communities to, that give people things to do when they want to move somewhere else to make, you know, the Lakefields or the Duro Dummers or the, the Coburgs or all of these other places, the Port Hopes, these slightly smaller, not city kind of communities, real viable um, alternatives for, for people to start to move to and, and diversify, I think, where people like the Torontonians of the world are going. And it also, again, it, it, it also allows people to move out of downtown Peterborough as well if they don't need to anymore and, and know that they're, they, they can be happy a little bit farther away from, from the center of downtown. And, and that I, I also think that when we're thinking of downtown intensive or intensification or you know, housing development and stuff like that, we think of like this, this sort of that 15 square blocks around the middle of Peterborough is the only place where that can take place. And I think that's a real mistake. I think that we can build up in neighborhoods outside and around our community, that there doesn't have to be just like a condo district where it's just a bunch of tall buildings in the center of town. We can build up, we can turn five, six unit housing and townhomes all around our entire community and all yes. around the entire region and really spread out that growth. Like, you know, we're talking about growth from 80 to 100,000 people. So it's like, I think we have to ask what kind of 100,000 person community do we want to be? And that's the, that's the question. And that includes work from home solutions, which allows us to really sort of rather than go all here right in the center of industry, we can spread that out a little bit, make it a bit cooler to be members of other communities.
uh, I just uh, want to widen the vision that Dane has painted here into the very near future and the conflicts, the the conundrums that are built into to policy making and development and all everything because of climate change. And that is when you invite people into these smaller communities or say we can uh, move out beyond thinking of intensification just in the downtown, you're going to hit food security um, because at the same time as we need to make room for people and those people are going to include migrants, climate change migrants. If you think we've got a lot of immigration now from the war in Ukraine, you ain't seen nothing yet. When crops start failing around the world and we look like the, the next, the, the existing, only existing breadbasket in the world. So we have to really face that complexity of climate change and do some very fine planning and make some very hard decisions about who can go where. Uh, there's also a strong movement for urban food. Are we going to, I have behind me one of the old Peterborough lots, which is about 100 feet, 150 feet deep. All along that block, uh, and these houses are built at the turn of the century and the rise of GE. Everyone had a garden and that's why those, those lots are as big as they are. This one gets cut by a grass mower about every third day. That's food growing land. And it's also being eyed by the housing advocates with whom I have immense sympathy and solidarity with to say, as the bylaw now allows, eh, Stephen, um, to uh, put a secondary suite on that land. <laughs> but that land is going to be needed for food. And if we start, we'll, we'll be putting pressure on the two big pieces of legislation that govern the municipalities growth so much, the places to grow, uh, the, the Greater Golden Horseshoe and the Provincial Policy Statement, three pieces of provincial legislation and policy. So we have some battles on our hand in the future. If and when you become mayor, Stephen, you, you, this is a kind of difficult situation so you're going to find yourself in. And, uh, and people are going to line up. And unless we have a common uh, ground that we're all in this climate conundrum together, and if we don't understand that, and if we don't allow municipalities to express their local needs through bylaw and through looser or different provincial legislation, I would categorize that as a moral failure because people are squeezed out to the bottom of the pile and we have poor, sick, homeless, sad people on our streets because of a system that does not accommodate them. And we could do that. Again, thinking of 30% of your income as the floor of affordable housing, bringing in basic income at the provincial level, child care affordability is on its way. We have basic income for elderly people and, and with uh, the new child care legislation, the beginning of basic income for children. But the majority of people in the middle have no basic income and it's getting harder and harder and harder. I know you may want to move on from this one. Uh, no, no, it's huge. That's all. It, it, it's a significant uh, discussion point, and from the discussion comes great ideas. You know, and and surely you highlight, you know, the length of the backyard. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing some work with Charmer Mugabe and uh, my partner in, in a community garden. And even when you think development and how developments happen as far as a community, Again, you know, this being an agricultural based community, you have to factor those things into development. You know, 
15 years ago, he had the Struits apple farm that were significant in the area of Ajax around Durham region. Uh, today, they're not there. You know, in the Brooklyn, you had large dairy farms. Today, they're not there. You've got housing on those lots. Uh, and as you're developing, you have to factor those into your development, ensuring some food security. Because at some point, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I looked at uh, uh, what would be a tiny greenhouse that could go in your garden that could be year-round producing food. You know, as the discussions happen, uh, one of the things I know I personally do is I seek out solutions that tie into those discussions. So there are there are solutions there. It's just that we have to now look at how we apply them to our current building codes to allow them to happen. Uh, well, Stephen, you're preparing the ground for where I wish to garden next. And so that is, what are you hopeful about? Like, what are the local good news stories? Or in other words, what, what developments or trends do you see unfolding in Peterborough and the Quarthas that feed your sense of optimism? Maybe I could go just because then th- this will be my my final point before I jet out early and, and leave you and everyone else's capable hands. I think that one of the things that and me I don't know maybe this is this is silly but I was in uh, I was out of country last week um, and for the greater part of last week and watching people band together after the you said the big blow as you called it bill watching people band together and come together as a community in moments of of extreme difficulty i think there's a lot that we can learn about how we did that for other moments i don't think that we there doesn't need to be trees all over the ground and you know power out for us to come together and, and band together as a community. And, and I hope that we take, because it was really wonderful to see people across all sorts of walks of life. You know, it was universally impactful. There were poor people and there were rich people that did not have power. There were small businesses and there were big businesses that had to remain closed or lost inventory. Um, it was extremely challenging. There are still people going through it. And my heart aches for those people. I know authorities are working around the clock to help those people. Um, but I hope that when we finally recover and when we when the dust settles from that, we learn what it means to come together in times of crisis, because because I think that, that that's a micro crisis and it's it's acute. But there are some chronic crises that are that are facing our community right now. Cheryl spoken really eloquently, you know, about the climate crisis. We're experiencing a housing crisis. We're experiencing an, uh, an epidemic of unaffordability. There, these are, and we, there are, there is a COVID, the COVID is still a thing. That's still happening. Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, I think we've conveniently forgotten about that uh, in, in the face of other things. There are still chronic issues that require a whole community response, regardless of belief, party line, income, background, ethnicity, identity. These these are things that we need to learn how to band together on. It can't just be in acute moments. It has to be for the chronic things too. And so I am hopeful of seeing that kind of response that we are still capable of that in spite of everything that has given me hope. And I hope that we apply it to other stuff in the future. Yes. You know, Dan, you, you triggered for me the, uh, it's almost an obscene word in discussions these days, uh, at least on the right, and that is the word solidarity. Yeah, people don't like to, what's that? Is that some yeah. Marxist word? No, it's not. It's about human beings working together. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, Cheryl. Um, um, uh, I um, have been struggling with the word hope. 
Uh, but before I say that, I'd say that a good climate crisis uh, really shows you that there is no left or right. A, a climate crisis oh, is... Oh, interesting. Yes. There's no left or right when everybody, as Dane described, is in peril. We don't, we don't ask if you're flying a, a convoy trucker flag. Um, we are helping each other. And this storm was yet, as in the flood, another example of that. But I, as I said, I kind of struggle with the word hope. Uh, there are times when I'm, I'm quite pessimistic about the future under climate change. And then that has caused me to switch to the word faith, not in a religious faith sense, but I have faith in my neighbors and, my, and human nature to come together I have faith in systems to right themselves if we apply the, the kind of pressure. I have faith in waiting for the right moment, whether it's whether you're going to run for office like Stephen and Dane or whether it's waiting for the right moment when you know that some consensus is building around something or even, to put it really sadly, the right crisis to move people into solidarity. You know, though, Bill, you did ask me the question, and Dana gave an eloquent answer to my, you know, question that was posed to me, which I appreciated. I was listening to a comment made by uh, Steve Harvey, you know, in respect to COVID, was saying that this is the first time in our lifetime that the entire world was dealing with the same problem at the same time. And when it came to the big blow for Peterborough, again, locally, not only did we have that other problem that we were dealing with simultaneously with the rest of the world, but here was a more localized problem that we were all dealing with simultaneously for at least the first few days where we had to get together in a way that helped our neighbors. The hope for me coming out of both situations, uh, you know, Cheryl, there is hope, um, is that there are different conversations happening about things that need to change, recognizing different sets of priorities in, a, you know, in a lot of areas, actually, when we even think of food security, you know, I attended one of our, the city's housing projects where we had seniors on the 10th floor of a building that could not come down. What it did was spur conversations about the generators that we put at these buildings and the priorities of neighbors checking in on neighbors. You know, we, we had no power at city hall. So the current mayor couldn't issue a state of emergency because he couldn't send an email. So then it spurred the conversation about, you know, how do you deal with mass communication when you don't have the other tools needed to produce that communication, including the city even as part of its emergency management process, acquiring the cell phones all our residents so that we could have done a broadcast, you know, having facilities available for seniors. Uh, you know, now the other part of the conversation is about how do we help those who are on the cusp of being part of the marginalized in acquiring the food that they had to throw away after it thawed over eight weeks uh, or eight days, I should say, because there's still some sections of cities where there is no power. Yeah. Um, uh, Bill, I'm wondering if I could invite Anne into this, uh, into this because I, I've long harbored this kind of vision. I'm not an artist myself, but I, I see the potential here for the arts community to step up and do the performances, paint the pictures, do the murals about our future. Give us a, a, a real head snap look at something that we are reluctant to look at. 
paint the picture of what our downtown could look like if it was intensified with affordable housing. I mean, excuse me for using that word. Let's say housing that is affordable. Give us performances that make us uncomfortable with the uh, lack of action on something. You, you know what I'm talking about, Anne? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've been talking about the community, the arts community as a resource rather than as a, a series of independent businesses, which is what generally they're trying to be painted as. But the arts community is, I, I think it should, it should be completely divorced from any kind of financial necessity. And I, I think that's where basic income comes in and where a lot of artists really thrive during the COVID crisis because they had served. But I think that if you want to know how to live, how a, a, a person on a low income can live well, <laughs> talk to an artist because most artists live on under, you know, about $20,000 a year and they don't appear to be that badly off. They're very resourceful. They're creative in how they uh, find housing, what they do with minimal housing or really crappy housing. Um, so I think that it, it shocked me when I was at one of the early official plan public offerings that how the city was sort of carved up into these, okay, this is going to be the this is going to be the condo section and this is going to be the industrial section. And, you know, I think if you just brought some artists in and said, no, how would you see this? You'd have something that would be exciting. It would be, uh, and neighbor and neighborhoods too is another thing. I think artists, like I live in a, I live in a downtown neighborhood and I've got half a dozen artists within a stone's throw of my house. And those artists are all checking. We are all checking in on each other. Are you okay? Do you need anything? And sharing knowledge, how to do things, how to, where to find things cheaply. Mm -hmm. There's a a real, now artists are hard. The problem with artists is they're, they're like, you know, you can't herd them. They're like cats, right? If they, they don't, they don't make good leaders. They don't, they're all kind of independent and quirky. So they don't work as a, as a unit very well. So that's where, where they kind of fall down. But I'm a really big believer in na- building neighborhoods, not housing exactly. I mean, I think if you look at Europe and you look at the, the high density of, of cities in, in older parts of Europe, they are beautiful. They're about five or six stories max. They're full of life on the street. There's little cafes. People live in smaller apartments, but they've got lots of street life and, and activities to do. So those are the lifestyles that you could use. And then and then you get into, I mean, Cheryl was talking about putting solar panels on, on industrial buildings. And why don't we, uh, we put food, uh, we could put food forests on top of yes. apartment buildings. We can have, you know, gardens on any level really we don't have to be stuck with that and of course trees everywhere and uh (laughs) you know i think that it's really about quality of life and and any artist will fight to the death for the quality of life and the freedom to have that kind of quality of life so that's that's kind of my vision of it um and then things like you know i was wondering with the infrastructure you know big infrastructure project on bethune street like why couldn't we also have been installing geothermal power that would power all of the houses along that whole that whole strip that could have been done for really you know think of the savings in the long term to that but there's no financial profit on that so 
of course, yeah. it's ignored. So these are ideas that I think if you consulted with the artists on a more regular basis, you'd find they're full of ideas like this that it would make the city better. I have a vision of an artist coming for the five minutes that are allowed to address council, and instead of speaking, dancing or painting their presentation yeah. or doing a, a, a performance art skit, you know? For right. sure, yeah. Many more questions to ask and things to dig at, but as our time is sort of beginning to run down, I wanted to touch on perhaps the umbrella, the overhanging or threatening cloud over this discussion is how can we prepare Peterborough and our region for the dramatic changes in climate that are coming. I mean, we saw what happened in BC last summer. What, uh, if it's possible, what, what actual things we should, could do at a municipal level, provincial level, yes, even a federal level for Peterborough and Quartha to make us more resilient or at least better prepared to bounce as opposed to be flattened by what's coming? Cheryl will correct me by not what's coming, what's already here. It's it's already here. And uh, I think that's the first thing is at every level, the artists, the municipal council, uh, schools, programs that Greenup has or the children's water program or at every level, community associations, we don't have those yet, but we need to form them. At every single level, we have to understand that we are in the climate crisis. And, just, and how do we find that common language? It has to be promoted and permeate the whole community. The second thing is prepare for it. Prepare your own home, your own way of living. And the city has a home. It, its home is the whole city. So uh, climate proof the infrastructure, like the Bithune Street project, and have the climate change lens on every single staff report. The only implication that's on a staff report right now is budget implication. The next paragraph should say climate change implication. And and that's been proposed for a couple of years. Get it done, Stephen. And the, the, <laughs> the third thing is for the municipality to continue to prepare its own corporation. You have a climate change action plan and uh, drive it home, drive it home. And it, there's a report card on the website and, and just keep doing it. But the companion to that is now this new Sustainable Peterborough Strategic Plan, which is the heir of that fabulous Sustainable Peterborough Plan we did 10 years ago. And it involved enormous community consultation. It was an excellent process, but it had no teeth. It had no authority and it had no funding. So if this new attempt at that same plan, adding the word strategic to it and sharing the responsibility with PKED could get some authority and some money behind it, that would go a long way. I'd like to just reiterate the the need for community uh, grassroots organizations that are going to implement these kinds of things independent of government. Uh, you know, as much as, as much as they can within, you know, the law, obviously, but uh, really acting on their own behalf and strengthening the ties of neighborhoods m- more and giving more more voice to neighborhoods that can easily be sort of demolished by by bylaws and and government changes and so on. I don't know if it's possible for the municipalities themselves to band together. 
I think there, I think I've heard that there is some work with, amongst the different smaller municipalities because when you have things like the MZOs being able to just basically overwrite an official plan at, at whim of, of the provincial government, that sort of undermines your ability to uh, implement a, a local, locally respectful change. So those are, I think it's, it's to the grassroots, uh, is where it's at. Yeah, Annie, when you were talking, uh, what flashed into my mind was uh, the first Friday art crawl. No government money, no no sponsorship. It's entirely yeah. driven by the artist community. And this wonderful monthly uh, social event that I'm sure has some economic benefit for uh, you know, restaurants and so on in the neighborhood, but uh, it's brilliant. Bill, I'm, I'm sure as you're aware, you know, being somebody who former resided in that uh, city of Montreal, about we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, you know, the the impact of buskers and the arts community. We we loosely recognize or utilize the term arts, heritage, and culture, and forget that not only have good policies around the protection of the arts, the heritage, and the culture of a community, but also you know failing to recognize it's got significant economic impact as well. You know, yes. when, I, when I hear people say, well, I don't want to go downtown. It's scary downtown. You know, there's no investment in our downtown. There is a role with the arts community to help sure. uh, increase the viability of the downtown. You know, I had a young person on my campaign team say to me that there's nothing Instagrammable about your downtown. Well, I got exactly, yeah. I, I knew exactly what she meant, you know. Yeah. The Toronto sign, how many times has pictures been taken of that and it circled the world? We know right. where Toronto is. The Trent University sign is now having similar type of impact. But when right. we talk about the heritage and culture of our downtown, there is nothing about it that says, you know what, uh, somebody in Europe says, I'm going to go to Peterborough because of this particular feature. I'm going to encourage our local residents to come downtown because of this particular activity yes. happening in the downtown with the arts community. There's yep. work to be done around it. And, you know, to your, to your point, Anne, when you talk about what can the municipalities do with respect to banding together, we have, uh, we have associations. In fact, I will be in Regina this coming week for a week, sitting down with municipal councillors from across the country, talking about some of these very same ideas. And how do we get support federally to enhance these ideas or make them realities? We also have the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, where local municipalities, in particular in our region, can band together and say, if we are to put that climate lens on policy, what support is there from the provincial government, given that climate mitigation is not a mandate under Section 2 of the Municipal Act? It is not within the purview of the municipal government, but if we want to take it on because of our localized municipality and what we see happening locally, how do we collectively make those deputations before the ministers and say, you know, change policy? Because that's also part of the job of local council. We are advocates and lobbyists no differently than we're policymakers locally. And we can change some of those policies. Okay, we're at, we're at time here, but in fairness uh, to, to all of you, uh, are, are there um, brief sort of sound bites you want to leave us with on this entire topic or things we've said? I, I would say I would say that um, the future shows up locally first. Ah, now that's lovely. Yes, the future shows up locally first. And in many cases, it's already here and we don't see it. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, I just think that we have to, people have to understand that we can't, we're not going to ever go back to the 70s. The 70s is gone. No. And we have to look to a very different future that to make to make that possible. Yes, no more disco. Yeah. Sadly, yes. Well, okay, if we, Stephen. If we could only draw a hashtags in front of Cheryl's line, I think we're good to go. Yeah, that's it. That's it. The future. <laughs> I, I did put I did put a, a connection in the in the chat. Uh, your mention of municipalities getting together. Uh, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities has put out uh, building blocks for municipal climate resilience. Great. All right. So, uh, Cheryl, Stephen, Annie, and Dane, thanks so much for joining me for this panel discussion. You've been listening to episode number 115 of the Pints and Politics podcast. In addition to being a podcast episode, this discussion will be converted to a radio broadcast on Trent Radio, 92.7 FM, CFFF in Peterborough, that will air sometime in the near future. We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast. We're also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So until next time, this is Bill Templer. 